0: Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing.
1: I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me.
0: I feel authentic. It brings me peace.
2: I think there is no absolute truth in any religion.
0: I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my
2: intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just gotta follow it.
0: You just gotta follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure
1: out what I believe right now.
0: Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On the last episode, I aired a short clip from the Reconstructing Your Faith Podcast hosted by Sarah Beth Capusta, And on this episode, I decided to talk with Sarah Beth directly about her experience of growing up in a cult. So Sarah Beth Capusta, thanks for being my guest for this episode of the Humble Skeptic Podcast.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. So in the opening of your podcast, you describe yourself as a survivor of 25 years of spiritual abuse in a cult masquerading as a Baptist church. So you weren't abducted and brainwashed by Satanists. You weren't raised by Scientologists. The spiritual abuse you describe took place in a Baptist church. Talk about that.
2: Yeah. Well, there was definitely brainwashing happening. There's definitely gaslighting happening and all those things that a lot of people are familiar with if they've watched documentaries on Scientology Mm -hmm. or other kind of cultic groups that are not Christian. But what I think gave the pastor so much control over us was not only his ability to manipulate very well, he would weaponize our faith against us and scripture against us. And so you have young believers, families um, people with a lot of passion and zeal. And then he is able to take that and say, well, if you really love God, then you'll do this thing. You'll give this money, you know, whatever. And then you add on top of just a twisting of scripture to manipulate and it morphed over time. Hmm. So in the beginning years, it was less intense and less crazy although i would argue he was always abusive but he became bolder and bolder in his abuse as time went on i guess as he realized we were really willing to do whatever he said i mean there's so much there but that's just like the general way that it worked and you you get the basic gospel and then immediately i i feel now that was immediately stolen away and we were handed this law and here's what you're going to do and then always our salvation was in question. It was always up for grabs. He could decide if you were saved or not and ruin your life accordingly. Wow. That was kind of how it worked overall.
0: You know, in Matthew seven fifteen, Jesus famously says that we should beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are mm-hmm. inwardly ravenous wolves. And this is something that you sort of experienced firsthand. Talk about some of the parts in which you would describe your time there as abusive
2: One of the stories that I tell often in response to just give an example of the kind of control and abuse that was there is when I was about to turn 18 and about to go off to college and making decision to which college I wanted to go to, my pastor wanted me to go to one school and I wanted to go to another. And what's very strange is that I wanted to go to a small Christian school and he wanted me to go to the state college, but I believe it's because his daughter was there and it was a way of keeping tabs on me because freedom was not allowed. And that's a whole other conversation on even how the trajectory went to current times because I still hear inside information sometimes about how they don't let people go off to college anymore because that's usually when people escape. But he says, I want you to go to this college. And I said, well, actually, I want to go to this one. And he slapped my face. Wow. This is a pastor.
0: What did your parents do at that moment?
2: Nothing. Hmm. And my mom wasn't there. I don't say that to shame my parents. It shows how much their hands were tied as well. But it also just shows how much we would just accept what he did. Right. So that was an example of that. There was a lot of shame as well. We were very shame driven. Public shaming was common. Um, I've got a pretty crazy story about that where we were and it's rules like you can't miss any services and to be late for church was punishable. Mm-hmm. But there is one time and this is this is such a crazy story. I've shared it publicly once before. My roommates and I were late for church. This was a Wednesday night service. We stopped at this deli. We had some dinner and we showed up. We walked in. I don't know how late we were. We walked in and to add to this story, I was living in his house during college. So I didn't I didn't end up getting to stay at the college I wanted to go to. And I ended up at a college actually local to where the church was located and living in the pastor's house with a different varying times, four or five other girls.
0: Talk about the ability to supervise.
2: <laughs> right. And there's so much to unpack there, but mm. we were all living in the house. And so after church, we all came home, we were all sitting around together and he's very angry and he's he's talking to me and my roommates who were late for church and he's like, "What are you going to do for restitution for being late today?" Anytime you got in trouble with him, it was frightening and he was always changing the rules and making me you feel kind of crazy and scared and telling you horrible things. and we were like, we'll clean the kitchen or we' we'll, we were like offering up all of these things we thought we could do to pay back for being late for church. Mm. And he decided the punishment for us would be that we had to dress up like clowns. We had to go to the local costume rental place, rent clown costumes, go back the following Wednesday to the same deli where we had dinner, eat there in a clown outfit and go to church in a clown outfit because that was the punishment we deserved. Wow. And you know what's crazy? We did it. That's the thing. When I tell this story, I am both horrified and embarrassed because I did that. Mm. I let someone make me do that. And I am a strong person now in my mind. So it seems even crazier to me at the time I look back there. I had no option. I had no option. I was living in his house. You know, there is nothing you don't defy him or he ruins your life. There is a invisible gun to everything that you hold dear.
0: I mean, what you say is when you did end up leaving, you you were shunned by the community and members of your family. So that's a huge gun. Yeah. But the the fact that you did it without really questioning at the time, helps us to understand your state of mind. Totalitarian systems, whether they're governmental or cultic and Scientology or some Baptist churches, uh, (laughs) there's a certain kind of pressure that can be put on the individual uh, that shapes the very psyche. And that seems to be what you're saying here is you can't now imagine how you could do that, but you did and people do.
2: And I thought it was loving. Hmm. I believed that it was someone loving me with tough love to save me from myself. Now, we're talking about a college student being late for a Wednesday night prayer service. You know, that's what we're talking about. I was late for church. I still have so much anxiety now about being on time Mm, for things. I'm sure. No one's going to shame me for being late. It's going to be okay. And it took me a long time to relax into what actual love from like a a pastor would look like. Mm. So when a pastor would say something from the pulpit, like, I love this congregation, I would think he was bad Mm. because he wasn't yelling at us and he wasn't reproving us. And it took a long time to learn because I was programmed to think that kind of pastor is untrustworthy. Hmm. Harshness is love. And so even when you read a Bible verse that talks about love, like if you change the definitions of the words in the Bible, you can still use the Bible and and control people if you change the definition. That's right. And so that has taken a while to just realize it's not too good to be true, to be in a healthy, safe church.
0: You say that you experienced your abuse for 25 years and that it was during your time in law school that you first began to recognize your church as a cult and you decided to separate. So were there times before that, say in your college years, where you began to have doubts or concerns about what you were being taught?
2: Um, Not in college. There were moments where I felt like I saw him crack and I thought he acted like an insane person. So my mom left the church first. It's not a church. I hate calling it that. It was -hmm. a cult. She left the cult first. And because of that, she was outcast. And honestly, because of that, my parents got a divorce. Hmm. It's a long story, but that's how much he held the membership and allegiance to himself and to that body of people above marriage.
0: Yeah. That sounds kind of like the the documentaries I've seen about Scientology.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So she's leaving. And my sister and I are just devastated because we grew up here. I was born into this world. I have no other way of thinking about life. And for someone to leave and for my mom to leave, it's like her soul is in danger. And then I'm tasked with rescuing my mom. And the pastor gave us particular advice, not advice. He told us what to do and we had to do it. Hmm. So we went to see my mom and he had told us, don't let her speak, only speak to her and do not let her talk to you. And here's what you're supposed to say. And he gave us what he wanted us to say. And guess what we did? We had a conversation because she's our mother and she talked back to us and we came back to the house and we reported in because it was like handmaid's tale and you always have to go two by two and you always have to reveal all the things that ever happened. And so he hears what we said. He hears that we talked with her and allowed her to talk back. And he basically said to me and my sister, you do not love your family. And whatever happens after this, and he was implying if there's a divorce, it's your fault oh man is you disobeyed me
0: that's psychologically traumatic
2: it's horrifying and i went to bed that night and i was crying and i was angry because i had a moment of clarity and i was like no one will ever tell me i don't love my family Mm. ever again like ever i had this like i was like absolutely not everybody that i've talked to that's exited has this moment where it was like super clear Something was wrong. There was a couple other moments along the way when while I was in law school where I would start to question. But during those years, that was it. And then I went back under the control. And then it wasn't until 2013 that I finally left.
0: What was the clarifying moment that caused you to leave?
2: You know, it was really gradual and it was really weird. So. I had been so conditioned to accept pain and abuse as something to endure or love or accept or be thankful for. But then I was also in a class on child abuse and the law. Mm -hmm. It's a really difficult class. It was a lot of really hard things to read, but I was starting to see myself in the stories Uh and not, not in the sexual abuse, not in some of the more specific details, but in some of the, the ways and methods and, it was just kind of, I started telling my friends in school stories about the pastor hitting me, things that I had been hiding because I intuitively knew that you weren't supposed to talk bad about the church. And so I started talking bad about the church and I was afraid God was going to punish me, mm. but I started to not care. And so I start telling my friends and they're shaking with rage mm. and they're like, do you understand that that's not okay? And I was like, um, yeah, Like, <laughs> was just like, really baby steps coming out of it. And it was a gradual, it was a combination of all of that that led me to really formulate this. I had to have a good reason for leaving, which now my good reason for leaving would be you're abusive. I don't have to stay here because it's hurting me. That's a good reason, Beth. I didn't understand at the time. So it's like this weird psychological thing. Someone would love to write a paper on it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And I came up with this thing. And I really believed it. And I met with one of my professors and I was like, I'm dropping out of school. I have to pursue this godly womanhood and all this stuff. And he was a prosecutor and he took a minute on my pastor's blog and he read around and he was like, this man is evil. Wow. Cause he, he kind of knows he is, he's seen a lot, Mm -hmm. but then he goes, I think I know what you're doing. You're just trying to wash yourself of the past. You're just, you're like one of these victims that's trying to just, move on and clean yourself up and you're dropping out of school and you're getting away from everything. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm following God. And this is what he wants me to do. And he was right. I really think that professor had, had a profound insight into what I was doing Hmm. at the time that I couldn't see because I, I was so disconnected from my own self that I couldn't even just look rationally at the facts, but I did drop out of law school six weeks before my graduation. Um, I did go back. I mean I did finish eventually. But wow. yeah, I, I it was a huge life changing time where I I left the cult, I left law school, everything was just leveled.
0: Was that twenty thirteen? Yeah. Wow. Yep. So talk about the way you ended up recovering in that year. You're thinking through both your profession, your career, your faith. So what how do the pieces get put back together?
2: I was suffering so much from mental health anguish. Mm. And I was desperate to understand what had happened to me. I didn't have any terms for anything. And I was a disaster of a person. I hit some very low lows that year. I became pretty much suicidal at one point. Wow. I was afraid to be alone with myself. I I remember just calling my friend and saying, can I spend the night at your house? I was just miserable and in t- torture. And the church I was attending was ill-equipped to help me, and they were actually heaping more on me and telling me that the true thing I had been delivered from was not a spiritually abusive church, but was a world, being a worldly woman, and that the biggest thing for me to focus on was becoming a godly woman, and that I had been a stumbling block to all women for having gone to law school, because that was not what God would have for women to do. And so I was living under this. They were adding burdens to me. I felt like I was bleeding out, mm. and they were just like, you're fine. I started researching what was happening. Cause I didn't, I didn't know spiritual abuse. I didn't know. I, I really, it was all starting to come together. I was seeing that it was abuse. I was seeing, but it wasn't as clear as it is now. It was very gradual. And I brought to these people, it was a, a pastor and his wife. And I was telling them I'm in the shower and I'm looking at the razor, like maybe, and they're like, okay, super stone faced, like no big deal. Hmm. And they're like, you just need to be less self-focused and your depression will heal. You just need to take your thoughts captive and you'll stop having those nightmares. Cause I was having PTSD nightmares and they were really bad. And I was having all kinds of problems and they were just putting it on me to fix it. Hmm. Well, if you would just do this, if you would just do that, it will get better. And I ended up researching and finding all these books about spiritual abuse. And I was like, maybe if they would read these books, They would understand how to help me because I wanted help. I really want someone outside of myself to help me. I want to be godly. And they were like, you have to promise you'll stop researching spiritual abuse. Well, obviously that's going super amazing now. But I, (laughs) I was like, he's like, you have to promise you'll stop. And I came to him with this whole list of books. And I was like, will you please read these? Will you please? I think you'll understand what I'm going through if you read these books. And then maybe you can help me adequately because I don't think you understand the terror in my heart and like, what happened to me? And they're like, that's not important. What happened to you? Mm-hmm. What's important is that you're a godly woman. And they started telling me things I needed to do to change my personality so that I wouldn't be so expressive or assertive or all the things that I am. And so that, that was the year after I got out and I was really trying. And there are moments though, and it, that sounds really horrifying It was really bad and it was extra trauma and it was not what I needed. And it's a miracle that I'm alive, Mm. I have to say. But I had a friend who noticed how I started to talk when I would tell her what these people had said to me. And she's like, you know, you sound like you used to sound when you were in the cult, when you're talking right now. Mm. And so one of the things was I wanted to go see my grandma. So I had been estranged from my extended family while I was in the cult. And then when I got out of it, I began to reconcile with all of my cousins and aunts and uncles and all that.
0: How about your mom?
2: It took me a full year before I would talk to my mom hmm. because they had so thoroughly maligned her character. Wow. Uh, and it was lies. So it took me an entire year before I even... I emailed her, but I wouldn't see her. And then I finally did. When you leave, they talk bad about the people who live. Right. It was my own mother.
0: But you have since uh, built the bridges back and you've restored oh, yeah. that relationship. Okay.
2: Yes. Yes. A year later we did. Um, and you know, my mom was here for the birth of my daughter and her first granddaughter. And so, yes, it's beautiful and you know, it's tough to work through, but it's good. So yeah, I had a friend tell me you're, you're talking like you're in a cult again, you're talking crazy. And so I was like, fine, I'm going to my grandma's house. So I went to my grandma's house and I read the book of Job that week. (laughs) And that was, that is what saved me hmm. was scripture. It was actually the book of Job. And I clung to a couple of things that Job said in that book. Uh, one was, I know my redeemer lives. And then the other thing was just the general idea of how God said to Job, where were you mm-hmm. when I hung the sun in the sky and, you know, d- divided the land from the water, all the things that God says to Job in the middle of Job's trial And it wasn't mean. It wasn't, it was just like, right. And it was through Job and it was through, I had a devotional I was reading. That's really old. It was from, I don't know, late 1700s or something. And it talked about submission to the Lord in difficulty. And it was like, okay, we're going to get through this together. Mm -hmm. And that was all I had. And I started writing down the lies that were in my brain. And I started writing down truths as much as I could understand it. So my understanding of the Bible was extremely skewed, um, but that was where I started. It was just the book of Job and, okay, we're gonna do this together. Like that that was it. And it was, and later on more doubts came in, you know, am I really a Christian? Is this real? You know, because that second group really did me in too. So it was a year after I was in that group that I ended up leaving just so I could go date my now husband because Mm -hmm. they didn't allow people to date because you might emotionally become involved before marriage. And that's emotional adultery. Like literally just falling in love was adultery. So I was like, that's not in the Bible. I knew I figured it out enough. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I'm not staying here anymore. You guys. And they shunned me as well. Mm. And so that was the second group, but I really did go to the Bible. I really struggled through. And as time went on, the initial shock of just loss wore off. That's when I got a little more into the nitty gritty of faith and what do we believe and what does this mean? And what does the Bible say about that? And who is God and all that? But that, that year it was, I know my redeemer lives.
0: Through the midst of the, you know, the suffering and the strange circumstances of your own experience in this very difficult church and the abuse, that's what you clung to was God is in charge in the midst of your suffering, but he's also a redeemer
2: yeah and i i can't explain that that's just what that was very much just like it got to my heart yeah that was it and i would get mad sometimes because i started to get a better understanding of god's sovereignty Mm -hmm.
1: because
2: it's you know it's so funny sometimes to me people will be like well you know sarah beth god's in control and i'm like that's the problem (laughs) (laughs) i know that and i don't like what he's doing therein (laughs) lies the problem I have some complaints for how he's doing things (laughs) so you know learning that he didn't abuse me he didn't want that dad there's so much you could go into on that but learning to rest and i mean i was basically a shell of a person Mm. emotionally mentally and physically my body was shutting down i was sick um i probably should have gone to the doctor but i didn't have any money because when i was cut off i had no job i have nothing i was alone I had friends, but I also kind of alienated myself from my law school friends because I was acting like, well, women shouldn't be law school. And so it was really hard. And uh, but yet I was sustained through basically kind of living on that idea of God is in charge and he is with me and he's healing. Now, I thought I would be healed very quickly, like, oh, get over this in a few months. Mm -hmm. It, It just takes time.
0: Yeah, your podcast is titled Reconstructing Your Faith, and one of the things you frequently talk about is the deconstruction movement, uh, Mm -hmm. which I'd like to talk to you about. But uh, before we do that, uh, was there a time in which you did consider deconstructing the faith and where, you know, you wondered whether the Bible really was true, even the book of Job, which was comforting to you for a while? You know, did you begin to question things on that level?
2: I did. I think my nagging question— that's so uncomfortable was is God an abuser? Mm-hmm. So because of how he was represented to me. And so there was different points where I would think, if he's like this, I have nothing to do with this. Yeah. I will absolutely have nothing to do with this. And yet there was a part of me that's like, I know he's not. Um, and there was a part of me that was absolutely terrified of re-losing community if I walked away from the faith. But I considered it because it's like, I don't like this. I don't know if this is true. I was terrified to read the Bible and discover who God really was. Cause I was like, what if he isn't good?
1: Mm.
2: And then what if he isn't good? And I decide he's not. And then, <laughs> you know, what happens then? Right. Um, and then also just on a personal level, you know, I questioned everything from, am I even a Christian to is Christianity even real to all of it? And it was really scary but i didn't it wasn't long lived and it was it was a lot of different ups and downs but i did have people in my life as much as i had some bad comforters and miserable comforters i had reunited with my family and so my uncle was a huge source of comfort and and godly advice at That's the great. time because there was just a lot of darkness i was mm-hmm. going through a lot he was a prison minister for a lot of years, I think 15 years. Had experience and, with darkness. Um, <laughs> he did. And I, I didn't really think about it at the time, but now I look back and I realize he passed away um, a few years ago, which is really hard. But he would remind me that the darkness couldn't have me because there would be times when I would just feel like I was trapped and God himself couldn't even get to me. And he was like, he can't. That's not true. The darkness isn't going to take you. And so it was through different things like that, that I was able to kind of hang on by a thread. But yeah, I, I did mostly keep and hide any doubts that I had to myself because I still believed, as I mentioned previously, just on our interview on my podcast, and you played a little bit of it, that I should be able to have this faith come from within myself, that I should be able to have this good feeling about belief that didn't come from proof outside of myself, but came from whatever, like secret thing that was like that's your faith it's like your ability to hold on and Mm -hmm. believe and so i was afraid of telling people that i had doubts so i never did it was so lonely it was so scary and hard and so that's part of why i started the podcast is because i want people just to be like i got some questions and i'm gonna be like that's good what are they (laughs) so um because god can handle them and it's okay to have them let's take them to the source i knew some people who had walked away There's a lot of people in our my husband's friend's group that kind of started deconstructing before it became super big. And it was scary to me because I was like, what if I do that? Well, I didn't have a really super great understanding of our faith until more recently, where now the confidence that I have isn't really based on if I have this like supernatural faith feeling in my heart, Mm -hmm. but it's anchored in something that is true regardless of if anyone believes it or not we have proof for it. Um, That has helped me considerably in more recent years and just be calm and confident.
0: Yeah. One of the words you used in, um, I think it was the interview you recorded with me, the more you gained confidence in the objective reality and trustworthiness of the historic Christian faith claims, you felt like you could relax more and you were less manic. Manic is the word you used. Talk about that.
2: Yeah. So, trying to always conjure this and i say these words now hindsight is 2020 this is not how i would describe any of this at the moment that i was trying to experience it but growing up in the cult our worship services were very charismatic uh we were baptist but it was sort of Bapticostal or whatever worship was you better be expressive you got to be crying and yeah. and even just going down to the altar and repenting and crying and it was so intense and, and manic i mean that was mm. it The experience was the sign of God. It was like, oh, you have something wrong with you if you're not experiencing that kind of worshipful experience. And um, we would get in trouble if we didn't pray hard enough. Wow. That was what it was like. And so now I'm like, that's not what worship is supposed to be, or prayer is supposed to be, or what fervency, that's not what that's saying. And I've learned that we don't conjure God. Like yeah. A,
0: one of the things I think is funny is just the way we we latch on to fads, right? So one fad that I right. haven't seen is the language you do find in the Bible about bowing down before Him. We we may sing about bowing down, but we don't bow down. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you you could right. you could have a movement that I think I mean even the even bowing with Jesus, down
2: movement. <laughs> yeah. Even even with <laughs> yeah. Jesus,
0: it says they bowed down and they worshiped and they grabbed His feet, right? So, but that kind of a posture though it's biblical, it's not something you see today. And so I just think a lot of it is psychology. It's a lot of what we're used to. It's a lot of what we're manipulated to think. And that's the case with pop culture. That's why you have fads of, you know, sexuality and all kinds of different things because things are normalized. And But mm-hmm. as we look through our own texts, you know, we have to ask not only the question, is this taught in Scripture, but is it being taught correctly? Right. Uh, is it in proportion with the Scriptures? And the thing that you and I talked about on your podcast, one of the things that came up was Acts 17, you know, where Luke actually commends the Bereans for checking to see whether the things that Paul was teaching was true. And, and Paul was an apostle, <laughs> And if it's true of Paul, it should certainly be true of our pastors, teachers, elders, regardless of the denomination. You know, you should question whether the things we're hearing from our pastors and teachers and parents is really taught in the Bible. And is it being taught in the right proportion?
2: Right. And I mean, because we have to remember that these are human beings that are teaching these things. And so much of church is there's a lot of room when you look at scripture for how church could go. right? And so even though I really am persuaded and uh, of what I now believe in our perspective on the regulatory principle of worship and those different kinds of things that have taken me now a lot of years of wrestling through of even experiencing different things to recognize that, yeah, okay, so our order of worship is this. But that's, that's our leadership's best way that they've decided to do church. This is how we want to lead you. Mm-hmm. But other churches may do it differently, and that's okay. And so right. there's something about that. Whereas, like, if you're in a controlling group, it's like, we know we have this special yeah. knowledge. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that you have one of the elders gets up and reads the call to worship. And then the other one, does, that's not in there. But people, that's one of the things you have to recognize, and we hold that loosely. That's one of those like super down the list of issues that we're not going to divide over, but it's how we've decided. But so often we get tied up in that, and then that can become a cultic thing.
0: I think Matthew 15 is really helpful. This is the scene in which the disciples come up to Jesus and say, "Uh, did you know that the Pharisees were kind of offended with what you were saying there? (laughs) And his response is, you know, leave them alone. They're blind guides." And if the blind yeah. lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. You know, there are other times, I think only a couple of chapters later, where Jesus is concerned about not giving offense. But he, in this case, when it was legalistic false teachers who were blindly leading the blind, he's saying here that it's a bad and dangerous thing to give blind allegiance to those in authority. It could be a very dangerous thing. It's bad for your health or your spiritual life. That's what he's saying.
2: Yeah. And those people... In the scripture were the spiritual abusers, right? When you look at the new Testament and you see how Jesus talked about them, they heap burdens on the people. They won't even lift a finger. They make it hard for them to come to God. I remember reading those passages for the first time and being so relieved and upset because we didn't really study a lot of the new Testament. In the cult where I grew up, he would take passages from the Old Testament and really bend them and twist them into like a narrative that ended up being about us specifically. Interesting. It was very poor exegesis,
0: and it's you centered. It's so, so the Bible is a yes. is a springboard for a discussion We're about the ourselves. The Joshua
2: generation, yeah, right. And and I remember methodically reading through the whole Bible and then being like super retroactively angry hmm. about just from that alone. I didn't have a full great understanding of how to approach the text yet but i just reading it all together was like that's not what that means this is just a book you can read it read it like literature and reading in the new testament and reading these descriptions of the legalists and the religious leaders and i was like oh oh that was my pastor
1: mm-hmm.
2: he made it hard for us to come to god like seeing that and re- and realizing oh he didn't teach us out of these sections but i remember thinking wow jesus is so much nicer yeah um you know but those were the passages we neglected and then reading them i was like oh my goodness this is a false teacher these yeah. are like religious these are the spiritual abusers this is the this is happening there's nothing new under the sun like yep. it's been happening since then and it's happening now
0: yeah my wife is really into horses and uh she had a close friend who taught her all kinds of techniques related to good horsemanship and she learned that sometimes people reject a particular philosophy and approach to horse whispering because in their experience, that same technique was poorly applied. You know, it may only have been off yeah. by, by a degree or two, but those particular degrees happen to be crucial. Now, it turns out that my wife's friend had also been raised in an extremely abusive and legalistic church background. And in her case, she ended up leaving the faith, but wow. my wife kept bringing back to her this analogy about those who had abandoned a solid theory of horsemanship as a result of bad practitioners. And that opened up a lot of conversations because basically it's the idea of a counterfeit bill. You know, when somebody gave you a counterfeit bill and then you are the one that got in trouble, (laughs) uh, doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you should reject all bills.
2: Right. Yes.
0: Just means you need to be discerning.
2: Exactly. And I remember reading a quote by Spurgeon that said, discernment isn't the difference between right and wrong between right and almost right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously it is between right and wrong, but what he's saying is it's really close. Mm -hmm. And what the Bible tells us is these are cunning deceivers when we're warned to look out for them. You know, I've said this before, like people who follow a false teacher don't think that teacher is false. Otherwise they would not be following them. So that's why it's so important to examine everything because You've mentioned this before too in Galatians when Paul says if I or an angel from heaven teaches a different gospel it's a very strong statement like the speaker is not who you're following you need to be looking at what are they teaching
0: yeah and you would think an angel or an apostle might have some charismatic authority
2: I think so <laughs> and Paul's making a really strong strong statement yes, with that he is. because you know it doesn't matter who's saying it don't follow false teachers don't look at the teacher and i mean there's so much to unpack there but there's a lot of that in our culture now
1: yeah People exactly are in,
2: oh, not everyone's in a cult but there's so much of like oh i just listen to whatever so-and-so teaches and i'm like have you learned how to research and see if that's biblical or not just because they quote the bible doesn't mean that what they're teaching is correct and so you know you we all should know what it says and what it means Do you think Um, we
0: need to do a better job, not only teaching like apologetics, but also hermeneutics, how to read and interpret the Bible?
2: Yeah. And I think if if we did that at this stage of my life, it's a whole thing to learn. And I'm very interested. So I want to take classes on it Mm -hmm. and I'm very diving deep. Not everyone needs to do that. But if we start from a young age, it's not a big deal. This isn't very, it's a lot at once when you're an adult, but when you're young and we're, we're bringing people up in the faith, we we don't teach it like a fairy tale. We teach it like it's it's everything else we teach our kids. Right. How to read. Yep. What are the ABCs? What is science? All the things that all, that's what we should be doing. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a deficiency. And I do think, you know, it's so easy just to listen to a famous teacher. And yeah. they, a lot of teachers are just really good communicators and they can make you feel something.
0: Which is one of the things that I try to say regularly on my podcast is that we should be skeptical not just of the Scientologist or the, the Mormon claims, but we should be skeptical of our own pastor's claims and of our own interpretations of the Bible. Not skeptical in like doubting that it's true, but doubting whether we've got it right. Um, doubting whether this is the only way to look at it. And it, are there other ways to think about it? Because it's easy to believe that which you want to believe. It's easy to believe that which you're conditioned to believe. And sometimes you can see that a lot of different well-meaning Christians have different interpretations of the same text. There may be one mm-hmm. text that has 15 different, you know, major kinds yeah. of interpretations. So all of them have a plausibility. And it isn't until you sort of say, stop. I know what this means on the face value reading, because I've heard it read that way for so many years. But are there other ways to look at it? And then, you know, going into the language. And sometimes that's when I find a new door opens up. Because there have been, I studied historical theology. So I've seen the problem. Like for a thousand years, (laughs) the church was mistaken because of this one interpretive issue. And then somebody like Luther comes along and creates this new door of opportunity. Here I stand, you know.
2: Yeah. That's important. I think what I get concerned with is when people want there to be subjective truth that we, that the Bible could actually have different meanings to different people right? Um, on major issues or that we can just decide for ourselves what we feel about God is true. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, but asking the, asking the question, I, my husband, I keep telling my husband, I'm like, I'm going to take Greek. I'm going to take Hebrew <laughs> because yeah. I'm like, I want to know what it actually says. And I I love languages and studying. I mean, I'm never going to be done.
0: I actually, um, when I took Greek, it was hard. But man, mm-hmm. that tool has really uh, produced a lot of fruit because the Bible is, you know, written in a different language. And if you really right. want to be an expert in this text, then, you know, at least have some competency that allows you to check out the lexicons.
2: Not everyone needs to become a Greek and. Hebrew scholar, but there is an understanding that we need to have. And I think, you know, we need to be careful that we aren't just like, well, it could mean anything, or we apply a deconstructionist Mm -hmm. interpretation on the text. And so in college, I studied deconstruction. It's so funny. I had no idea. My English professor assigned me and my group to talk about deconstructionist philosophy and how it relates to interpreting texts. And so I was a freshman in college, but I remember it really clearly because I thought it was so weird. But I think it's important that we understand what that philosophy is yes. and that it's all about subjectivity. And that is not how we were to approach the text. But what you're saying is you might have been having this taught to you wrong the whole time. And you need to be sure that this is what God said, because we can get it wrong. And there's a story, Achan, in the Bible, and he, his whole family is killed because he kept back some of the treasures.
0: Joshua 7.
2: I accidentally drew on the wall of our church wall. Like I was drawing on the whiteboard one time I was writing on the board and I spun around and the dry erase marker, marked a little line and I didn't tell, I didn't tell anyone that I did it. And apparently someone noticed this mark on the wall by the whiteboard and started questioning all the children who drew this, who drew this. And no one would confess. Well, I wasn't in the room to confess. I was in the other room watching the kids and I, Came out and they were like, "Did you hear that someone drew on the wall? Because Miss So and So taught us about Aiken in church today, and if we don't confess who oh, who wow. told who drew on the wall, they used the story of Aiken to scare me to death. Mm. That is a really bad use of scripture. I'm so relieved that that's not the appropriate." <laughs> publication of the story <laughs> and i was weeping like i was like i drew on the wall yeah. like i was crying yeah. and then literally a little cotton ball a little alcohol on it wiped right off mm-hmm. no big deal but it was traumatizing and yeah. that you know i think back those are the initial experiences i had with stories like well, you better not or like the kids who get eaten by a bear and right you're like don't talk about the prophet of the lord or you're you could be killed so yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring up those kinds of passages from the, uh, from the Old Testament because it was a kind of harsh and traumatic reality. Um, you know, there, there is a harshness to the law that was yeah. intentional. I mean, Paul calls it a ministry of death. But it's interesting to me to contrast the story of Achan from Joshua 7 with the way Paul reframes things in the New Covenant in one of his epistles. He says, let the thief who stole steal no longer. Okay, so Achan was condemned to death because that's what the law does is it, you know, Psalm 143 says, do not enter into judgment with your servant for no one living is righteous before you. We all sort of have this death threat hanging over us. But what Paul says in one of his epistles is great. He says, let the thief who stole steal no longer, no capital punishment. Instead, let him work hard with his hands so that he may give. So there's no condemnation given. It's just you're washed in Christ and now you're redirected to Mm -hmm. become like Christ, sacrificial giving being the thrust of new covenant ethics. And I just love that contrast.
2: Yeah. And even in the requirements, so we know that the law is good if used lawfully, and I love Mm -hmm. talking about the law, but my version of repentance for a long time was, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to get myself together. Like, I won't need you. I'm going to stop being jealous. I'm going to stop being angry. I'm going to stop all these things. And instead, um, now I'm like, Jesus, I am a sinner. I need you. I need your help. Thank you for dying for me. I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling with this thing. And I'm just help, please.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's
2: very different. That's very different. The freedom of confession. And we're forgiven. And that's, I mean, in that talking back through the idea of faith that you talk about on your podcast, that i being a more accurately described in certain contexts as trust, as the actual action of relying on the thing we believe, that's what that is. Like, I believe that you not only already died for this, but you're going to enable me.
0: Yeah. When David confesses, he not only asks to be forgiven, but he also says, create in me a clean heart. Give me new affections, you know?
2: Yes. Not only I'm sorry for this thing I just did, but yeah, change me.
0: Yeah. Okay. So one more question before you go. Did you ever end up reconnecting with your dad or is he still in the cult?
2: Oh, yeah. That's such a dramatic story. He left to come to my wedding. Hmm. They weren't going to let him come to our wedding. And he met my husband the morning that we got married. He drove up and met him that morning. And it was really intense. Hmm. (laughs) It was very emotional Wow, uh, because I did not have assurance that he was going to be there, although I did know he loved me. But he showed up the morning of, met my husband, and that was quite a wonderful gift mm. that yeah but so we are reunited so my mom left i left like five years later then my sister left a year after that then my dad and then my brother and then i have a little sister still in there mm. and she's actually married to a pastor so it's really bad so that sister i haven't seen in well i did technically see her a couple of years ago my sister and i went back into the cult to try to see our sister just to see her just her we love her to mm. let her see our faces basically we showed up and we had to run over to her and her husband stood between us and said, she's my wife. You can talk to me. And I just like ducked under his arm. I was like, she's my sister. And she can talk to me if she wants. And I was, I was like, for you. move. And I like looked her in the face and I love you. I'm here for you. If you need anything, I'm here. And she just was like, okay, okay. And then that was it. That's the last time I saw my sister. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks for sharing your story and um, yeah. man, it's powerful stuff. So thanks for all that you're doing.
2: Thank you. And thanks for what you're doing, because I am so excited for my listeners to go and listen. I think it's going to bolster people's faith because people who are going through what I went through are not feeling it. Yeah. So to understand that that's okay, and that we have something greater that we believe in than our feelings is comforting. Yep. Yeah.
0: Folks, you've been hearing from Sarah Beth Capusta, host of Reconstructing Your Faith, which is a podcast that is super helpful, particularly for those who have experienced some form of spiritual abuse. I recently asked Sarah Beth to write an article about her experience, which she is currently working on. And if you're interested in getting a copy of this article when it's released, simply head to HumbleSkeptic.com and sign up for a free subscription, and you'll receive an email notification of this and all future articles and Humble Skeptic podcasts. If you'd like to help support this work, then consider signing up for a paid subscription via Substack or by throwing a few coins in the tip jar, which you can find in the show notes. Thanks so much, and I look forward to being with you again next time as we discuss the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives.